All right, thanks, Peter. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's great to see you all. I think most of you are aware, but maybe not. Uh, Leith and I and our kids were gone for much of the second half of July, I guess, and I had four weeks off of preaching, too, which felt good. Uh, but great to be back uh, and, and to see you all. We always uh, deeply miss being here uh, when, we're, when we're traveling. So uh, we're going to continue today in a series on the book of 2 Timothy, which we have about a month left or so. And if, uh, before moving on to some other things this fall, if you uh, have a phone app or a Bible, want to turn there, feel free to do that as I'm kind of introducing where we're going to go today. Um, one thing I wanted to start with, uh, though, other than just to say, uh, kind of by way of reminder, that this is one of the pastoral letters of the New Testament that the Apostle Paul is writing to kind of a young protege, a son in the faith, he says elsewhere, named Timothy, uh, about kind of all things being a pastor, and we'll talk about that a bit more today. Uh, aside from that, I mentioned something, the first, I believe the first sermon of this series on kind of the different layers by which to read these, uh, this subgenre of Scripture, being not just a letter, but a letter uh, called a pastoral letter, or a letter written by a pastor to a young pastor. Uh, three layers to kind of approach this book by, so that when we're hearing it, we're getting more of a nuanced uh, biblical view rather than kind of an imbalanced one. Uh, the, three, the three layers then were this. So when we are kind of confronted with uh, and uh, invited into and we hear God speak to us through this book, on one level, it's for all of us. Uh, whatever your role in the church, even if you're not a Christian yet, uh, the gospel is in this book, and so we, we sort of hear God call out to us, we hear him instruct us, we hear him console us. On one level, it's for all of us. On another level, though, it's particularly for pastors. Uh, Timothy was a pastor. He's a singular individual that lived 2,000 years ago. He was just like us. He was a sinner in need of grace. Uh, he had this role, though, he was called into. And Paul is writing to him about being a pastor that if you're not a pastor or never will be a pastor, uh, then you're going to hear it differently. Not that you shouldn't hear it or just tune it out. It's in the Bible for a reason. God wants all Christians to know uh, and beyond. Uh, to know what he has to say about this role. And uh, there are things that maybe you could say, I could pray for my pastor about, uh, or about um, uh, their role, or about their, some, some characteristics of sorts that the Bible encourages them to exemplify in the church community. Uh, so we'll talk about that today a little bit, too, and we have been throughout this series. But that's kind of a second, more honed-in layer. Uh, the third layer would be to kind of set aside all of that to the side and say it's actually about Jesus. Uh, he is the chief shepherd of our soul. So when you talk about pastors, you, by definition, talk about Jesus. You, you can't not. Uh, the the, the uh, first Timothy or first Peter 5, a different letter, but the New Testament says elsewhere that we are under shepherds. There's a chief shepherd, Jesus, and pastors are kind of smaller, imperfect uh, you know, albeit sinful, but still um, reflections of the chief shepherd. And that's, that's part of what they do. They exemplify him in different ways, like all Christians do, but uh, in, a, in a special way. Uh, so with that view in mind, then, this third layer, uh, a lot of times when we read, we just are reading about him. Not about us, not about pastors, but about him. And that becomes the gospel, then. If, you, if we forget to mention that third level, we've forgotten to mention the gospel in a particular passage of scripture. Um, so danger arises then uh, when you read these letters only on the first level, as though Paul's writing to us in the exact same way he's writing to Timothy, and that he means only to write to us on that historical and ethical level. Uh, much more nuance is needed than that. Uh, much more recognition that there is a divine author 
not just a human one, but a divine author behind this book, which a lot of times means that God's intent goes beyond the humans. And that there's a biblical and apostolic uh, bent towards this as well, when we kind of bend the knee to and submit ourselves to how the apostles read the Old Testament and how they see Jesus in passages that we would otherwise be uninclined to see if we were instructed by the Bible uh, itself. All right? There's tons more to say about that. I hope that's a helpful refresher or just um, if it's, that's the first time you're hearing that, I hope that's an encouragement. I will show you kind of how to do this uh, today as we go through this. I'm going to emphasize all three of these in a little bit different uh, areas. Uh, and that's, this is not to say that every single passage you'll have like a perfect 33% each here of, of emphasis, but just to say that there's always going to be layers to this. All right, so with that said, today's uh, sermon is called Gangrene, Clay Pots, and a Better Hope. So lots going on. Uh, let's read from 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 26 uh, in full to begin, and then we'll come back and work through it. Starting in verse 14. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, silver but also of wood and clay. Some are for, for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. All right, so we're going to start today, kind of three big sections to this. Um, there's so much here, as usual, time won't allow for us to kind of mine for gold uh, every, in every single word, but I want to start with what might feel like the most obvious thing going on here, and that is, because it kind of is, uh, and that is a pastoral job description of sorts, uh, like I was saying before. And so, uh, again, this is uh, from older pastor to younger pastor, this is what you should do. This is what you should not do, and this is uh, um, what you should be able to do. So some of these are character traits, some of these are more uh, duty instructions, uh, but they all go together to kind of serve as what this older pastor wants to say to a younger pastor in encouragement, in love, about his job in this role. All right, so I want to walk through a few things here. I kind of five things, there's more going on than that, and this is not going to be exhaustive, by the way, either. Um, and I just mean that in the sense that Paul's not trying to be exhaustive. There's other places in the New Testament that speak to this. So um, this is just kind of his angle on it in this particular letter. 
Uh, and this is not going to be in any particular order. Uh, and actually, as I read this too, you might think, those are all good things for all Christians, right? Not just pastors. And you'd be right. But there are especially things that are important for pastors to emulate for the sake of the greater health of a local church community, and in particular as it relates to the ministry of the Bible, uh, as the, to the ministry of the Word, ultimately. So more on that in, in a minute. But let me start with uh, verse 24. We'll start kind of, uh, sort of, I guess you could say, small and go big, even though, again, this is not really in any particular order. Uh, the first is, Paul says, pastors should be kind, from verse 24. And so the Bible is just saying here, um, that there is no place for theological or spiritual bullying in the pastorate at all. Um, now, this is not equating kindness with agreement, though, either, like a lot of people do today. So, you know, we can't say uh, disagreement is a form of unkindness. That's not true. We're not necessarily true. I guess we could be unkind in how we disagree, and that's not okay. But disagreement itself is not unkindness. Uh, nor does this mean that there isn't a place for firm rebuke or correction in a pastor's job. There certainly is. The Bible speaks to that elsewhere. But with all that said, uh, pastors should strive to be kind and approachable and gentle. Um, in Paul's uh, first letter to Timothy, he actually says that real, a lot more explicitly. He says, uh, pastors should be gentle men. They, they should be uh, courageous and ferocious in certain ways when it comes to spiritual matters. Uh, when it comes to uh, loving the flock and loving other Christians, they should be gentle, uh, not brash and not harsh with their words or with how they carry themselves, but, uh, but gentle uh, in, um, in, in all their, their capacities. And the idea is that Christ is like that to us. Uh, God is the kindest being in the universe. Isn't that kind of cool to think? It's not, if you're like me, that's not necessarily uh, an adjective I'd always think of when I put to God, like, um, or a trait, but he is. He's the kindest being. He's a lot of things. He's uh, all the good traits to the highest level, but he's the kindest being, and in that way, the, the gentlest um, as, as well in a lot of ways. And so um, the idea is when a pastor is gentle and approachable and kind, that we're seeing a reflection of how Christ is like to us because of his death on the cross and how we can approach him because of it. All right, the second uh, angle here or thing is kind of a catch-all thing. It's a little bit long, but Paul says pastors should flee evil, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace in community with others who also call on the Lord. Um, and so uh, there's moral instruction here, and also I like this thing at the end where he says, uh, others who call on the Lord. And I like that last part because it describes a church that together, pastor and not pastor, that together calls on God or calls on the Lord, who flee evil but also find forgiveness from God when they don't flee evil, uh, who never graduate from depending on God and who are primarily defined by calling upon him, not flexing their own spiritual muscles. In fact, uh, in another one of Paul's letters in the book of Romans, uh, Paul contrasts the phrase calling on God with doing the law or doing the commandments. There's different kinds of righteousness in the Bible. One is seeking to do in order to be made righteous, and one is calling on God who makes people righteous by faith or by trust. And so this is just a beautiful picture of a church that recognizes our, our primary thing that we do here every Sunday, whether it's listening to preaching, whether it's singing, whether it's taking communion, is to live a life of dependence and open-handedness that does not go away after we convert. 
It stays that way. That, 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 is, that is who we are. We are known for it. We are defined by it. We're constantly saying, I'm not enough. I need God. Like that last song, you are our more. Uh, God, you are my more. You are everything uh, uh, to me. And so, um, so that's what this means, that pastors, of course, are called to this. Non-pastors are. But this community where we're uh, pursuing righteousness, we're finding forgiveness when we live unrighteously, basking in the blood of Jesus, but constantly depending on God. So it's clear that change comes from him, uh, not from our willpower and not from us. All right, number three, pastors should not be resentful, which implies that we'll be hurt, right? All of us, pastors, non-pastors, even by people and maybe especially by people inside the church. That's Paul's primary meaning here is don't resent Christians. He's not saying just don't be resentful generally to people that you know that are just out there, you know, in the world, Christian or not. He's saying in your local church, um, don't resent those who hurt you. Don't resent those uh, who um, have sinned against you. And, uh, and, and we shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't be resentful or hold a grudge because at the core of our faith, we believe we deserve much worse than we're getting from God. We have been shown an immeasurable grace and love from him that we didn't earn. And so to put it another way, to be resentful is to forget the gospel. It's to forget that in light of the cross, God drops all grudges against you. And so you see how the Bible talks in these capacities uh, sometimes, actually all the time? It says, in the same way that God has first done this for you, in this case, dropped all grudges against you by bearing them on himself in the cross and absorbing that and being just and merciful then at the same time, live that way among others, uh, your families, your friends, your peers, uh, your uh, leaders at church. Like, don't hold a grudge. Don't be resentful because God does not resent you through Jesus. He does not hold a grudge against you anymore through Jesus. Or that is to say, we're not enemies with him anymore uh, through Jesus. He has made us his friends. All right, similarly then, the fourth one is that the pastors should not be quarrelsome or waste their time with petty arguments. I just love this one. Uh, part of this is a human thing. Part of this is just being a pastor for 16 years. Uh, but now we don't know uh, specifically what Paul's referring to here, but I think we can say that he's at least asking Timothy not to get dragged into silly debates about things that just don't matter. It's just great, like, life principle, you know, in general. Uh, but don't get dragged into silly debates about things that just, in the end, don't matter. Um, he's saying, as a pastor, you should be known for prioritizing the right things, most notably the gospel of grace and other inner ring theological matters. Having nuance in the right areas, so meaning pastors should know when to be black and white and when not to. Uh, that's really hard sometimes. Sometimes we stand up here or just talking to you guys or whatever and we're very black and white, either or. And sometimes there's more nuance needed than that. There's layers, like I talked about before. There's layers to this. It's not just one thing. It's like three things simultaneously. And so pastors should be very good at knowing when to prioritize one thing and when to, when to relegate something to the side that is secondary or tertiary in nature. That's our job before you guys. That's our job before God, before the church, according to Scripture, is to not get caught up 
in things that just don't matter. Not everything matters uh, on the same level, at least. He even calls it stupid arguments sometimes because that's just the reality. Some things are just dumb. They're stupid to care about and to argue about. It's just not worth it. Um, so, uh, so he has all of that kind of on the one sort of uh, kind of this is what it looks like on a duty level. On a character level, you could also say that a pastor who is secure in Christ has a heart that is okay not winning all the debates. This is like super hard for me. Uh, but a pa- pastor that is okay in Christ, super like secure in him and in the gospel, knowing that he's loved on the basis of grace, not works, um, is okay not winning all the arguments and the debates. Even uh, think of, of Jesus. Jesus himself didn't come to quarrel or nitpick uh, or mince words or even to win Jesus didn't come to win in every sense of the word that we use it in English. Uh, He came to die for us. He came to lose that we might win. He came to die for our sins and to become last place that we might become first place because he gave us that. Does that make sense? That's the gospel. And so again, all these things find kind of their origin and their power Uh, The undercurrent of all of these character encouragements or duty encouragements is the gospel. It's to put the gospel on display or to live in a way that flows from being wrecked by the grace of God. And sometimes this, this gospel of how Jesus lost that we might win and was okay with that and in that loved us, sometimes that gospel is best reflected when a pastor bites his tongue. That's just the reality. Sometimes it's best reflected when a pastor stays silent and, and doesn't respond uh, to, to things that are thrown his way. All right, fifth and final, uh, pastors should be able to teach. This is uh, definitely not least, uh, even though it's last, because uh, this is probably the number one thing on a pastor's job description is to teach and to correctly handle the word of truth, the Bible, but specifically the gospel, which is what he refers to. The word of truth is the gospel. Um, even more than it is every word of Scripture. Um, the Bible didn't even exist in full here when, when Paul first wrote this. He's talking about handling with accuracy and correctness the gospel that is at the core of all theology. Like, that's their job. All right, I want to actually make this its own category today because, it, it, as you may have saw when I read, it takes up such a central part of this section of Scripture. Um, and it constitutes a big part of what it means to be a Christian. Like a big part of what it means to believer is to be fed the truth by your pastors and also having your pastors expose false doctrine and label it as such for you. Uh, If you're not aware, a massive part of the New Testament is about false teaching infiltrating churches. It's like at least, if not the main point, uh, or main kind of contextual point, one of the sub-contextual points to like all of Paul's letters whether it's writing to churches or individuals, it's at false teachings infiltrating the church. Um, and, and the tricky thing about false teaching is that most of the time, false teaching is half true. It's not obvious. It's not a flat-out lie. There's a half-truth to it. And uh, I think what pastors are called here to do then is to have nuance and to have uh, skill by God's grace and to have a, a, um, an ability to teach that exposes preaches the form but exposes the latter. Um, I think Charles Spurgeon said once that discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong, but the difference between right and almost right. That's discernment. 
And this is, of course, something all Christians can aspire to, uh, but pastors especially should have that ability to know this is like 100% right and this is 80%. And because it's only 80%, we need to expose it for what it is. And in that exposing, call it out and protect you all from things that you might not otherwise be, be inclined to see in the 20%. All right, so a warning against false teaching then. Uh, we'll see more of this kind of play out today. Um, let, me, let me actually go back and read verses 17 again and 18. There, so speaking of the, the false teachers, their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So he's actually naming people in this letter. It's that important uh, to call out these individuals who are teaching this. Uh, who have departed from the truth. It means they were in the truth, they identified as Christians, they believed the gospel to a degree, or at least appeared they did. Now, because and through this teaching, they're leaving Jesus. They've left the gospel, they've left the church. Um, But here's what they're saying. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. All right, so that's the first important thing to see here is uh, the nature of the false teaching Um, it's not always the same thing in in the letters of the New Testament, but this is what's going on in Ephesus, or one of the things that um, Paul says to Timothy, be on guard and um, call this stuff out, because this is dangerous. So the big question here is, why is this so dangerous, right? Why does believing that the resurrection already happened uh, so dangerous? And why does that actually destroy our faith? Um, You might think when you read that, um, aren't there worse heresies than this? This seems a little bit uh, like we're nitpicking here. Um, I can think of a few off the top of my head. Maybe there are worse heresies, but this is definitely a heresy. This is heretical, unorthodox, harmful teaching. Um, and, and so, but, it, but here's the thing. To say that the resurrection, speaking of our resurrection, Christian's resurrection, not Jesus's, these people are acknowledging Jesus rose from the dead, but To say that our resurrections, which follow after we die, or that somehow come from his, in the wake of his, has already somehow happened, is to deny the resurrection's physicality and to relegate it to some kind of metaphor alone, like beauty from ashes. Or the resurrection means God is a God of second chances, and uh, he's given you a chance to get up from the ashes of your circumstance and... um, and flex your spiritual muscle. Um, we don't know exactly what they were saying, but that's, we hear this stuff today. Uh, if you don't, you will. It's all over the place. Um, to say that the resurrection kind of already spiritually happened, but that's all that Jesus really meant by it and the Bible means, is to do a lot of things theologically, uh, none of which are desirable. Uh, one, it is to call Jesus a liar. Two, it's to declare death the winner. Three, it's to make Christianity then into a myth. And four, it's to put the focus on something more central than hoping in Jesus for rescue from death, which in the end would invariably be something to do with us. If you take our hope in Jesus out of the picture, what's left is always you and something you must do or me and something I must do. So the flow of logic would be uh, the resurrection's already happened. It's a past tense spiritual metaphor alone. So now our focus as Christians is on other things like changing the world and becoming perfect and focusing on Jesus' moral teachings alone. Or to put it another way, saying the resurrection already happened is to say the gospel is in our rear view mirror. 
It is to say, we already know it. We've heard it a thousand times. Now, now we're on to other things. Uh, and it's spreading like gangrene, which is, if you guys know what gangrene is, um, actually, I'm going to spare you a picture. I was thinking, I'll show a picture, but it's awful. It's this awful physical condition where um, blood flow, uh, loss of blood flow um, causes tissue to die, usually in like the extremities, and it leads to amputation and all kinds of horrific things. Um, and, and this is actually why, too, I think um, that Paul uses the word trap of the devil. Um, this is, a, a, I think, a wide-ranged meaning here, but trap is an interesting choice of words in light of what, we, what we're just talking about. Um, traps aren't obvious, right? Like a trap is, uh, you don't usually see a neon flashing sign pointing at the trap saying, watch out. Uh, usually it's, you know, uh, it's unseeable, it's camouflaged, or uh, a trap setter wants to surprise the person, right, and kind of uh, capture the animal or capture the person uh, by, by surprise. So traps are subtle. Uh, many times you don't see them until it's too late. Sometimes traps wear masks, like wolves in sheep's clothing, as the Bible says elsewhere. Like, oh, that trap looks a lot like Jesus. It looks a lot like the gospel, but it isn't. See, again, this is the problem with false teaching. Uh, and this actually helps us understand what the nature of the false teaching is. Uh, the false teachers in Ephesus weren't saying that um, we should go and just do bad things and do evil. Like, all of a sudden, that's okay. Um, they weren't saying, stop believing in Jesus. Um, that wouldn't be a trap. That's obviously wrong. Non-Christians would know that's wrong for the most part. They'd be like, something's off with this church. Like, I'm pretty sure they're supposed to be about Jesus. That wouldn't be trap-esque. It wouldn't be trap-like. But this is what would. A trap, theologically, would be to say, the gospel's good, but now the real work begins. And Paul is saying to Timothy, you have to call this stuff out. This is not okay. It's leading to spiritual gangrene in bodies. It's destroying the faith of some. It's leading the teachers themselves to leave the church. You must teach against this. You must protect your church from making the gospel into a past tense stepping stone onto something bigger and better. Uh, to, to go back to the gangrene imagery for a minute, what we need is a constant flow of the blood of Jesus Christ to the extremities of our soul or we start to die, period. If we as Christians cut off the word of his gospel and assume we know it perfectly and put it in the rearview mirror and seek to advance to other things that we think are right and good and holy, and they might even be, but if we centralize those things and focus on them, we get gangrene due to the loss of blood flow of the Savior into, into our soul. And uh, I know if you guys have been here for a few weeks, uh, some of the other pastors who are preaching have, uh, have shared um, kind of some person, personal asides sort of along, along these lines, and I'll just share a couple of my two cents here uh, with you all along these lines, and that is kind of on their behalf too. Um, as your pastors, we love Jesus deeply. We love you all. Uh, there's things we hate, though, too. We hate gangrene theology. We hate theology that is light on the cross. 
uh, we hate theology that takes secondary matters and makes it primary. It takes things that are outer ring and brings them into the bullseye and confuses churches. Um, we hate theology that makes it more about us than about him. And um, the scary thing is, it's really easy to do that. We have all done it at times. I've done it. You've done it. Um, it's really easy to do and still sound Christian. And so, um, as one of your pastors, but speaking for them, we take this stuff really seriously before God, uh, that per scripture and before him, one of our main jobs uh, is, to have, is to stubbornly differentiate between law and grace. Stubbornly. Uh, to stubbornly bring you back to the manna and bread of Christ's body every week and to show how things that are kind of half true can sound like it's gospel, but it actually isn't. Um, that's not always easy to do, um, and we're not perfect at it. You can pray for us in that. Uh, but that's where it comes from. Many, actually, it comes from many places. It's not just right here. But this is an example of how this has been a thing in the church for 2,000 years, and it will be for another 2,000 if Christ waits that long to come back. Um, and so gospel centrality is um, it, it's, it's non-negotiable. Uh, for our, our church culture. It's non-negotiable for our preaching. Um, whether we feel it or not, it's what we all need coming in here. We don't always feel it, uh, but we need it just as much uh, as you do, uh, as, as your pastors, and this is a big part of where this is coming from. So probably more I could say on that, uh, but, uh, but there you go, all right? Okay, uh, last section, a parable and a savior. Verse 20 again, let me read this. It says, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. All right, so kind of confusing little passage here, right? Uh, It takes uh, on more the feel of a parable, almost, than a straightforward teaching feel. And it almost feels a little bit out of place because of that. But in terms of what it means, um, if you pick up the several commentaries on this, you, you'll see this, but you may have even just guessed that Christians have differed historically on whether the clay-gold distinction is a line drawn between Christian and non-Christian or if it's a parable for the church. And I think it's a little bit of both, and I'll explain that. But I think more important than understanding which it is, though, is actually starting by asking deeper questions like, What does it mean to be cleansed spiritually? How are we cleansed? How are we made holy? This is just good best practice stuff, too, for reading the Bible. Like, when you read something in one place, ask, what does the Bible say elsewhere about this same thing? And is it more clear there? Can it help me kind of understand the crypticness of this one place? Because this actually is one of the less clear places that we talk about holiness and we talk about cleansing. This is not the clearest place you can go. I mean, it's wrong or anything. It's God's word. It's good. This is not crystal clear though. So if we do read this as kind of a parable for the church uh, about the Christian life itself then, um, I would say this. Don't just read this in a conditional way, uh, which would be to say, um, if I live in a gold-like way, then God will use me. Um, Because notice how that's completely immeasurable uh, and unachievable perfectly. Um, Now, there's some truth to it, If we keep making stupid decisions about our time and our life and who we're hanging out with and how much we're invested in the church and 
um, all that stuff, well, sure, that's going to affect the degree to which we're used by God, by, by God. Absolutely. But at the same time, we also need to think about what the Bible says elsewhere about these same matters. And we need to think things like, I've been made into a gold instrument, past tense. I've been made holy by the blood of the Lamb, though I was but a jar of clay. And he's already using me many times without me even realizing it. Um, some of you guys have gone through our, um, our member process here, and one of the things we like to say to people becoming members about spiritual gifts is that it's likely that you've all been used in many more ways spiritual gift-wise than you realize. I think sometimes we think, if I don't actively know I'm using it, then I'm not. But that's just not true. That's not logical or biblical. Uh, if a gift is a gift, it's from him, not you, uh, chances are you've been used to edify another Christian with your words or your deeds in a lot more ways than, than you realize. Now, of course, we can think actively about using them, absolutely. Um, but it's the same here, that you've probably been used by God in many more ways. Your prayers, your acts of service, your um, patience, your budding of your tongue, you're giving the benefit of the doubt, your love, uh, your, I mean, all kinds of things. Uh, I know that's the case because uh, I've been the recipient of so much of that from you all. Um, but see how that's past tense, though, and how both can, be, uh, both can be a thing? And I think if we don't have this nuance to this, it just becomes this, okay, I've, I've read this passage, and now it's just about the future and how I leave here and how I live my life, and if I live it well enough, then God will use me. That's a really utilitarian way to think about your relationship with God that's not very joyful and not very holistic. Um, and so instead, it's better to understand if you're a Christian— that I have been, past tense, made holy and made a gold instrument. And, and th then the encouragement becomes, may he do so all the more as I more fully embrace his gospel and live out of my newfound identity as a son or a daughter of the king. Like, that's a much more healthy way to think and will probably lead to a lot more uh, goodness in your life than, than the former thing, the one on top. In fact, to press that idea even further, in, in, in God's economy, Gold isn't the most important mineral or substance. Uh, I was actually um, reading, uh, talking to Peter, actually, Carlson, in between services, and Peter was like, yeah, of course it's not, because in, in the new earth, they're going to pave streets with gold. Uh, it's like asphalt in the new earth. It's like nothing, you know? So it's kind of funny, so, but he's right. Um, so the, but in 1 Peter 1.18, look what it says. It says, you haven't been purchased with something perishable, like gold, so it's downplayed, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So blood is the better mineral. Blood, in God's economy, blood is more important than gold. Um, and so in that same vein, another way to look at 2 Timothy 2, I mean, if we're talking about a good thing and a bad thing, uh, a lesser thing and a greater thing, a common thing and a special thing, if there's some kind of distinction being made here, another way to look at 2 Timothy 2 would be to say that Jesus became the fragile, broken clay pot nailed to a wooden tree. In other words, he became the clay and wooden vessel. He, the special one, became the commoner, spilling his blood that we might become holy gold and silver vessels. You see, then again, the exhortation then in light of that, in the wake of that is, live as though that's true. Breathe the free air of that gospel in and go and live your life in, in, in freedom. Let the voice of that gospel speak a better word 
than the word of measureless truisms and law-centered lashings. This verse 15 says, um, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. I'll start to make this uh, some of my final words here. This is really huge. Uh, Those of you who are grammar nerds for a second, or if you're not, just bear with me. Um, Notice the tense here. What is this saying to Christians? Do your best to present yourself to God as one who is already approved, done, past tense, a worker who does not need to be ashamed anymore. And the reason Paul can say this is because of grace. That's the only reason. If we're saved entirely by the grace of God, not at all about what we do or give to him, he can say, just do your best to present yourself to God as one who's already been fought for, one who's already approved by his blood, already cleansed, already a son and daughter of the king. It's, uh, Ephesians 2 says, you've already been, past tense, raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenlies. Like there's that, that reality is also breaking in, right? And so when he says, do your best, also this implies that we're not going to be great at this all the time, right? It implies that Paul and Timothy and a lot of the Ephesians weren't great at gospel centrality. They weren't great at not adding themselves into the equation. Like they still did it too. It was Jesus plus me. I am sanctified by how I live my life. I'm made holy by my obedience. And Paul is saying to that, it's gangrene, he labels it, but he also comes in here and says, do your best, pastor, do your best, Christian, to come before God in, in, with a mindset that you're already completely and totally approved because Jesus died for you. You're a son, you're a daughter of the king, an enemy made a friend. Um, and this is, actually, this is actually a mindset for the pastor, but also what I think should fill his sermons. Also for all of us as Christians, a, a worthwhile thing to be thinking about um, on a day-to-day basis. And that is, don't try to prove yourself. You don't have to prove yourself to God or to your pastors, or to each other. Um, that, that's, that is a distinctly unchristian way to live. Unchristian. And again, we think about this way all the time. That's why Paul says, do your best. The, the, point is, don't, the point is not be perfect at thinking this way. The point is for wretched sinners like us who are broken in mind, body, and soul, who are crawling spiritually and just beginning to walk, all of us to some degree, um, do your best to live as though you're actually already approved, that you don't have to prove yourself, and that you don't have to be ashamed anymore because God has covered you like a blanket. Everything you've done, thought, all of your acts of debauchery, um, all of your your sins, sexual and otherwise, uh, all all of your acts of pride and self-promotion have been covered like a blanket. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's why he can say this right here. Don't try to approve yourself. Don't do it. And so because of this then, uh, to kind of borrow some of Paul's words from earlier, um, you are accepted and loved just because you're accepted and loved. That really is it. Let me say it, and let me just say it again. You all are accepted and loved by your creator simply because you're accepted and loved. It is completely and altogether apart from anything you will ever do or think on either side of your conversion, period. Anything else 
becomes gangrenous. I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm going to use it. It becomes gangrenous. Pertaining to gangrene. Did I not, was it not clear? Okay. It becomes gangrenous. It eats away at your tissue, um, and, and we've all, we all have this to a, to a degree. We need, the, we need the, the chief physician and doctor of our souls. Um, but you are accepted and loved just because you're loved. And so the degree to which then you flee wickedness does not define you as much as his love does. Flee wickedness was one of the imperatives here, right? The degree to which you do that, I don't know if it's heavy for you to think or not. I'm guessing most of you are thinking crap to that. Some might be thinking, sweet. Most of you are probably like, crap, you know, when you, when you hear flee wickedness. Uh, it's a pretty broad statement, right? Um, I think crap uh, to that, like, shoot. Um, but that's why, that's why verse 15 is so important. This is, this is why the gospel and reading this into passage is highlighting the gospel over things like that and through things like that is so important because your identity much more than how well you flee wickedness or not in your life doesn't define you as, as much as his love does. That, that is who you are, Christian. You are loved, and you've been shown grace to the uttermost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Uh, it's so many layers and nuances, but I, I just pray um, about the most important part of this, which is um, that you are our great physician. Uh, you are the one who uh, clarifies the truth in our lives. You are the one who's good and kind. You are the one who doesn't quarrel or fight with us. Instead, you bear our sins. You're the one that does not resent us or hold a grudge against us, against us but you bear that grudge, uh, Jesus, yourself, on that cross. And um, in the wake of that, we have full access to you so we can approach you and present ourselves to you as fully, uh, fully welcomed, fully loved, fully accepted, uh, fully approved, and not work for that approval anymore, um, spiritually, physically, emotionally, or otherwise. Uh, save us from that, God. It is a relentless cancer um, that uh, it's, it just feels so impossible to shake sometimes, but you are enough. You are more. Um, thank you for becoming the clay pot. You became the thing. Uh, the bad thing in this passage, so it's not just about us trying to become like gold, like you, but the gospel is you became like us. Before the clay pots, you became a jar of clay, broken, dashed on the rocks, um, and derided. Uh, you became sin, so that in you we might become the righteousness of God, the Bible says. You, the rich one, became poor so we might become rich in your poverty. It says elsewhere. I mean, it's all over the Bible so that we can't miss it. That you became the bad thing, even though you never became evil. Somehow you did, though, becoming human. Uh, you became sin. You became the worst of things uh, so that you might pluck us up from hell and from the grave and bring us into your home forever. Um, thank you for that. Help us to sing now and worship and, and to be thankful as a community. In Christ we pray. Amen.